Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. And since we might be weeping by the time we come to the end of this message, maybe we'd better try to laugh a little here at the beginning. Besides, Proverbs 17, 22 says, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A while back, I received some humorous emails. I'm sure you all get these from time to time, forwards and so forth. Uh, they all happened to come at the same time. One was called Useless Facts. Another was called Daffinitions instead of Definitions. The other was a list of sayings on bumper stickers. So I'm going to give you some of these, and I'm sure you've heard some of them. But maybe we can get a little chuckle out of them before we start weeping with the book of Lamentations. So first, definitions. These are words that should exist, but they don't, all right? The first word, accordionated. This is being able to drive and refold a map at the same time. By the look on your face, some of you have tried that. The second word is aquadextrous, possessing the ability to turn the bathtub faucet on and off with your toes. And then there is aquilibrium, that is the point where the stream of drinking fountain water is at its perfect height, thus relieving the drinker from either having to suck the nozzle or squirting himself in the eye or the ear. The next word, burgicide, when a hamburger can't take any more torture and hurls itself through the grill and into the coals. That's burgicide. Buzzax. Buzzacks, people in phone marts who walk around picking up display phones and listening for dial tones even when they know the phones are not connected. Then the next one, and if you've done any housework, this one you can relate to. Car perpetuation, the act when vacuuming of running over a string or a piece of lint at least a dozen times, reaching over and picking it up, examining it, then putting it back down to give the vacuum one more chance to suck it up. And then there's a dimp. This is a person who insults you in a cheap department store by asking, do you work here? And then there is the word disconfect. To sterilize the piece of candy you dropped on the floor by blowing it, somehow assuming this will remove all the germs. And then there's this one. Echnalubma. Now, there's no way unless you saw this when you, you would get it. It's the word ambulance spelled backwards, okay? Echnalubma, a rescue vehicle which can only be seen in the rearview mirror. And then there are Iphilites, gangly people sitting in front of you who, no matter which direction you lean, follow suit. And then there's the word albonics, the actions of two people maneuvering for one armrest in a theater seater on an airplane. And then there is L-acceleration, the mistaken notion that the more you press an elevator button, the faster it will arrive. And then there is frust. Frust is the small line of debris that refuses to be swept into the dustpan and keeps backing a person across the room until he finally decides to give up and sweep it out somewhere else. Then there is lactomangulation. This is manhandling the open here spout on a milk container so badly that one has to resort to the illegal side. And then there is neon fancy, 
a fluorescent light bulb struggling to come to life. Then there is the word pepier, the waiter at a fancy restaurant whose sole purpose seems to be walking around asking diners if they want ground pepper. Then there is the word pedophobic. Pedophobic, one who is embarrassed to undress in front of a household pet. That is a pedophobic. Then there is the word phonesia, not amnesia, phonesia, the affliction of dialing a phone number and forgetting whom you were calling just as they answer. And then there is the word pupkis, the moist residue left on a window after a dog presses its nose to it. And then the final definition is telecrastination, the act of always letting the phone ring at least twice before you pick it up when you're only six inches away. So those are words that don't exist, and some people think they should exist. Moving on from there, here are some useless facts. Now remember, these are useless, okay? The, the phrase rule of thumb is derived from an old English law which stated that you could not beat your wife with anything wider than your thumb. It's true, but useless. The glue, here's another useless fact, the glue on Israeli postage stamps is certified kosher. Here's another one. Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, was allergic to carrots. The very first bomb dropped by the Allies on Berlin during World War II killed the only elephant in the Berlin Zoo. Next useless fact. More people are killed annually by donkeys than die in air crashes. Another useless fact. Only two people signed the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July. John Hancock and Charles Thompson. Most of the rest signed it on August 2nd. Next useless facts, there are two credit cards for every one person alive in the United States. Next useless fact, clans long ago that wanted to get rid of their unwanted people without killing them used to burn their houses down, and that is where we get the expression to get fired. Next fact, every time you lick a stamp, you are consuming one-tenth of a calorie. Next fact, an ostrich's eye is bigger than its brain. Then the next fact, a jiffy is an actual unit of time for one one-hundredth of a second. Next fact, until 1965, driving was done on the left-hand side on roads in Sweden. The conversion to right-handed was done on a weekday at 5 p.m. All traffic stopped as people switch sides. This time and day were chosen by design to prevent accidents where drivers would have gotten up in the morning and been too sleepy to realize that this was the day of the changeover. And then the last useless fact, the phrase, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, is from ancient Rome. The only rule during wrestling matches was no eye gouging. Everything else was allowed, but the only way to be disqualified was to poke someone's eye out. And thus the phrase, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. And then finally, by way of introduction, we'll hurry through some sayings seen on bumper stickers. You've seen some of these. Maybe some of them are new to you. But here we go. Bumper stickers. Change is inevitable except from a vending machine. Another one. I love cats. They taste just like chicken. Who hasn't seen that one? 
Another one, cover me, I'm changing lanes. The next one, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in public schools. Next one, laugh alone and the world thinks you're an idiot. Next bumper sticker, sometimes I wake up grumpy, other times I let him sleep. Next one, I want to die in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming and yelling like the passengers in his car. Next bumper sticker. The gene pool could use a little chlorine. Next one. I didn't fight my way to the top of the food chain to be a vegetarian. And then this one. Your, your kid may be an honor student, but you're still an idiot. Next one. It is as bad as you think, and they are out to get you. Next one. I took an IQ test, and the results were negative. Another one, where there is a will, I want to be in it. Another one, if I'm not supposed to eat animals, why are they made of meat? And then, the bumper sticker, forget about world peace, visualize using your turn signal. Here's a good one. We are born naked, wet, and hungry, then things get worse. Here's a good one. Make it idiot-proof and someone will make a better idiot. He who laughs last thinks slowest. And then this one, very funny, Scotty. Now beam down my clothes. Consciousness, that annoying time between naps. And then this one, we are Microsoft. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And then there are three kinds of people. Those who can count and those who can't. Another one. Why? Some of you are laughing very slowly. You remember the earlier one? (laughs) He who laughs last thinks slowest. Okay. And then this one. Why is abbreviation such a long word? And then finally, diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you find a big rock. Well, it is fun to laugh. And I hope that everyone here is exempt from tragedy at this point in your life so you can laugh because, as you well know, there are times in life when you can't laugh. There are times in life when tragedies are so severe that all you can do is cry. Remember, Scripture says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. The book of the Bible that we are going to consider in this study is not about laughter, It's actually about weeping. It is the book of Lamentations, and I invite you to turn to it with me if you're not already there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, then the book of Lamentations. The term Lamentations is from a Greek verb meaning to cry aloud. That's what this book is all about. It is made up of five gloomy poems one per chapter, which lament or cry out loud because of the utter devastation of the city of Jerusalem and its temple. Thus the title of this book in our English Bibles, Lamentations. The author of this book was the great prophet Jeremiah. If you are familiar with Jeremiah, then you know he was a tender-hearted prophet with a stern message. 
He warned the people of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, he warned the people of Judah that they were headed down the exact same path that had been taken by their brethren up in the north, in the northern kingdom. Because of their rebellion, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. God allowed the Assyrian army to march into Israel and carry away the people into captivity. Now you would think, you would think that the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem would, would have learned a lesson from what had happened to their brethren in the north. But tragically, they didn't. They, t- they continued to digress spiritually in spite of the fact that God sent them his prophets to warn them and to call them back to the Lord. One of those prophets was Jeremiah. He warned the people in the southern kingdom that if they didn't turn back to the Lord, they were going to be conquered, devastated, and carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. Not the Assyrians this time, but the Babylonians. And that is exactly what ended up happening. King Nebuchadnezzar and his troops actually made three attacks against the kingdom of Judah over a several-year period. The final attack began in January of 588 B.C. and lasted until July of 586 B.C. That's over two years of length, in length. The city of Jerusalem fell on July 19th, and the city and the temple were burned on August 15th. That is what caused Jeremiah to weep so grievously. It wasn't just that the city was destroyed. What made it so pathetic, what made it so heartbreaking, is that it was unnecessary. God would have gladly protected Jerusalem and Judah from the mighty Babylonians if the people of Judah would have trusted him. But they didn't. They didn't want him, if you can imagine that. So the divine discipline of God came in the form of the Babylonian army, and the capital city of Jerusalem was decimated. That's what broke Jeremiah's heart. So he penned this lament. As I mentioned a moment ago, the book is made up of five poems. Thus, there are five chapters in our English Bibles. You will notice that chapter 1 has 22 verses in it. And so does chapter 2. It's not just coincidence or happenstance. The first two chapters of this book are acrostics. You see, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so there are 22 verses in each chapter. Each verse begins with a word whose first letter is successively one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You you can't see this in English, obviously because we're dealing with a translation, but you can see this in the Hebrew text. If you were to just have a Hebrew text and line it up, you can just see the line. Verse 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Aleph. Verse 2 begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Bet, and so on right down through chapter 1. Chapter 2 follows the same pattern. Chapter 3 is similar, but notice that it gives three verses to each letter. And thus... The first three verses of chapter 3 all begin with the letter Aleph. The next three verses all begin with the letter Bet. 
and so on throughout chapter 3. So, as you can see, just by even looking in your English Bible, there are 66 verses in chapter 3, which is the middle poem, sort of the pinnacle poem of the lament. Then, chapter 4 goes back to to this simple acrostic by giving one verse to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, thus 22 verses, because there are 22 letters. Why did Jeremiah do this? We, We can't be certain. He doesn't tell us, but... There's been speculation, and it's probably fairly accurate, that Jeremiah used this structure to illustrate the fact that his sorrow and Jerusalem's sufferings ran the full gamut, we would say today, from A to Z. That's our English expression. In in Hebrew, it would have been in their alphabet. By the way, chapter 5 doesn't seem to follow any pattern. Maybe Jeremiah was so distraught by the time he got to the end that he just didn't feel like being creative any longer. I've been there before, and so have you. Another interesting note about this book is that the first four chapters are also written in what is called limping meter. Limping meter. That is a cadence used in funeral dirges. So it's an appropriate style for this particular book. This is a funeral dirge that we're going to look at. So with all that in mind, let's begin our survey back in chapter 1 and make our way through this very sad book. And as we do, try to appreciate the emotion of this book in Hebrew Scripture. Verse 1, chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who who was great among the nations, the princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Can't you just hear the pathos in that opening verse? I don't know where Jeremiah was when he penned these words, but I can picture him in my mind sitting somewhere along the top of the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. From there you get a panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. And as Jeremiah views the once majestic city, it's barren. It's desolate. It used to be bubbling with people, but now it is an empty shell. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. That is an allusion to the fact that Jeremiah trusted, I mean, sorry, that Jerusalem trusted in other nations for her protection instead of trusting in God. The other nations were her lovers. But those other nations even helped the Babylonians plunder the city of Jerusalem when it fell. She should have trusted in God. Verse 3, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. That is a key verse in this book because it states the reason for all this devastation. 
The reason was because of the multitude of their transgressions. Verse 8 states it again another way. Verse 8 says, Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. As we skip down to verse 12, Jeremiah begins to write on behalf of the city. Jerusalem is personified in these verses. Notice verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Now remember, this is the city talking. The city is personified. Verse 15. The, the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. It's a very sad scene, is it not? But it wasn't as if the Lord was unfair for what he allowed to happen or caused to happen. Verse 18 says, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. In other words, all that happened to the city and all that happened to the people of Jerusalem was justly deserved. Chapter 2 begins to describe what happened. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. Jeremiah understood that this devastation was not simply the work of the Babylonians. That comes through in those verses we just read. This was the work of God. This was, the, was, was his divine judgment on a rebellious city. Verse 7 says, the Lord did this. Verse 8 says, the Lord did this. The Babylonians were merely his instrument of judgment. And all of this was overwhelming to the tender-hearted Jeremiah. Down in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, my eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground. It pictures him so sick that he throws up. He can't even hold it in because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. The city had been so exalted, but now it was in ruins. Verse 15 says, All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. 
Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? That's what it was at one time. And that's what made this such a cataclysmic event. The city had been exceedingly lifted up, but now it was exceedingly low. The conditions were so severe that verse 20 of this chapter seems to say that mothers even ate their children. Skip down to verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord, young and old lie on the ground in the streets? My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. It's difficult to imagine such conditions. But this was the condition of Jerusalem after God's judgment. Chapter 3 is the longest poem consisting of 66 verses, three for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The mood in the early verses of this chapter is just like the first two chapters, very sullen and dreary, downcast. But the tone begins to shift in verse 19 as Jeremiah cries out to the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The damage done to the city and the nation was fierce, but all the people weren't killed. There was still a remnant that survived, that the Lord protected. And Jeremiah knew that in spite of Judah's unfaithfulness, God would still be faithful to his covenant promises. Remember, beloved, the covenant that God made with Abraham, all the way back in the book of Genesis, the covenant God made regarding uh, made with Abraham regarding his people was an unconditional covenant. Remember, Abraham went to sleep. God passed through the pieces of those animals by himself, which was a way of signifying he would fulfill that covenant regardless. God will fulfill it in spite of the unfaithfulness of Abraham's descendants. So even though God allowed tremendous ruination to occur on this occasion, all of Abraham's descendants were not obliterated. They weren't completely consumed, to use Jeremiah's word here. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And as Jeremiah thinks about that momentous fact, he has hope. Verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah knew that there would still be a future for his people Israel. Down in verse 31 of this same chapter, he says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of of his mercies. Beloved, the very fact 
the very fact that there is even a nation of Israel today and that there is still a Jewish people today is an illustration of the immense mercy of God. As we move into chapter 4, we come to the last acrostic poem. Remember, chapter 5 is not an acrostic. Chapter 4 is. This chapter describes the actual siege of the city, the actual attack. What happened? What took place? Look at chapter 4, verse 4. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. In other words, rich and poor alike experienced these severe sufferings. No one was exempt. Didn't matter how much money you had, how much affluence you had, didn't matter. Verse 9, those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. That is mind-boggling. Jeremiah again tells us the conditions were so bad that compassionate women, not hard-hearted, compassionate women boiled their own children for food. It's almost impossible to fathom. The book closes in chapter 5 with a prayer of confession and supplication. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to alien, aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. These words seem to be a description of what life was like for those who had been carried away into captivity. Down in verse 8, servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased, our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. What a picture of desolation. 
so empty, so uninhabited, that now foxes have taken over Mount Zion and roam around without fear of human intervention. So the book comes to an end with a fitting prayer. Down in verse 19, it says, You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. It's a tough way to end a book, is it not? In fact, it's interesting to note that because this book ends on such a negative note here in verse 22, when it is read publicly by Jewish people, the custom is to read to the end of the book and then stop and go back and read verse 21 as the conclusion of the book. Verse 21, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be returned or restored Renew our days as of old. That was the prayer of those who had repented as a result of the calamity the Lord had brought on the people and their city. That was Jeremiah's prayer. He loved his people. He loved the city of Jerusalem. He loved the temple because he loved the God of the temple. What a heart this man had. He reminds me of another man who also had a heart for Jerusalem. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 as we close. All the way over from Hebrew Scripture to the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 37. And you can also hear the lament, the heartbreak in these words spoken by our Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's an interesting verse. Your house is left to you desolate. Just a couple chapters earlier, when Jesus came into Jerusalem during his final week, you will remember that early on in his ministry, right at the beginning, he cleansed the temple. John 2 records that. And then he did it again at the end of his ministry. He did it at the beginning and at the end. And when he came in to cleanse the temple, at the second time at the end, he made the, the comment when he told the people to get all of us out of here because he said, my house, quoting from Scripture, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house. My house. Two chapters later, three chapters later, he says, your house. Between that event and this statement, God moved out. God moved out of his house. The temple was no longer the dwelling place of God. God moved out, the glory departed, and judgment was coming. Jesus spoke these words six centuries 
after Jeremiah had written the book of Lamentations. By this time, as you know from knowing biblical history, the city and the temple had been rebuilt. The people of Israel were carried away into captivity. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years, but they were released, allowed to go back to their homeland. They went back and made a life, life for themselves. They rebuilt the city. Uh, Nehemiah took a group back to rebuild the walls. They rebuilt the temple, etc. There was a temple there in Jesus' day, often called Herod's temple, although the temple had existed for hundreds of years. Herod just beautified it and enlarged it, but often it's called Herod's temple. So by this time, the city, the temple had been rebuilt, but sadly, the people's hearts were just like they were six centuries earlier before the Babylonians conquered them. The people were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. They weren't willing to submit to their Messiah, Jesus. So they were about to experience the same kind of thing the people had experienced in Jeremiah's day. The city would soon be destroyed again, along with the temple. And here's an interesting note. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's any way to verify this. But this is what Jewish people say, that this second temple was destroyed on the exact same day as the first temple. Another judgment from God, this time not at the hands of the Babylonians, this time at the hands of the Romans. The city would be destroyed again, the temple would be destroyed again, and our Lord knew what was coming. He could see it coming. So he was grieved heartbroken over the city. He lamented the coming judgment and devastation. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. That's what I wanted. You didn't want it. You were not willing. So all that is in store for you is destruction. You know, maybe it Maybe it's unnecessary for me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I don't know everyone who's here. So I'll say this. Maybe some of you are like the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Lord has called you time and time again in your life, but you just refuse to listen. I don't even know what brought you here for this service. But you aren't willing to turn to him. Please listen to me and hear what I'm saying. You too will experience awful judgment someday if you don't yield to the Lord. That's not a threat. It's a simple statement of fact. And if you die in that condition of rebellion and unbelief, yours will be the saddest funeral of all. So submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray as we close. Father, as we look back at Jerusalem's history, what a glorious city it has been so often. What a rebellious city. What an unfaithful city. Destroyed by the Babylonians as the execution of your judgment. And it's no wonder that Jeremiah lamented as he did in this book we have considered in this study. And then amazingly, Amazingly, we would think that the people would learn. But even after the city was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt and beautified and enlarged, the people's hearts were no different than they had been six centuries earlier. 
And although Jesus warned them and warned them, they would not listen. So judgment came again. The second time, at the hand of the Romans. City destroyed, temple destroyed, people's lives ravished, decimated, all because of stubbornness, rebellion, refusal to submit their wills, their lives to you. Father, may we learn that lesson well and not be like the Jewish people in Jesus' day who repeated the very same thing the people did in Jeremiah's day. May we see the high cost of rebellion and being stiff-necked and being unwilling to hear, unwilling to yield. And oh, Father, how I pray for anyone who's gathered here in this service who especially fits that description, who has heard you from your word call time and time again, call to repent, a call to turn, a call to yield, a call to surrender, but they just keep playing games with you, thinking that there will never be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. Oh, Father, how we pray that somehow, some way, whatever it, it would take, you would get through to them, that they would stop resisting, stop rebelling, stop postponing or ignoring your call and surrender their lives to your Lordship. May that be true of each and every one of us gathered here in this room. We pray together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.